The scripture passage we'll be looking at this morning is found in Revelations chapter 21 and 22. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We'll be looking at uh, three different passages, actually two passages. The second one covers the end of chapter 21 and beginning of chapter 22. We'll begin with Revelation 21, verse 1. Please give your full attention to God's holy and errant word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Skip down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 fruits, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The band U2 had a huge hit 30 years ago. I was stunned when I realized that this song was a hit in 1987. Song, probably one of their best known songs called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. It actually was a pretty controversial song among Christians because this band had obviously developed uh, quite a following among Christians because most of the members professed faith in Christ. And the, tr the lyrics, while speaking of the gospel, also had a very troubling refrain to it. An example of an expression of the gospel is in this line. It says, you broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. But 
the refrain says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And of course, it was troubling to many Christians to think, are they saying that Christ isn't enough? That we need something more? No, I think that I've never really heard an exposition on, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I think what the writers were truly, really trying to say is not that we need something more than Christ in our lives. Instead, the song is acknowledging that we don't yet have all that Christ has accomplished for us and have not yet received all that he has promised. We still have not found all that we're looking for. Melissa Kruger writes on her blog about Advent. She says, as believers, we look back, but we also look forward. Just as our children delight in the remembrance of past Christmas joys, they also look forward to what awaits them under the tree. More is yet to come. As his people, we look back and remember that Christ has come and redeemed the world. We look forward and hope for that day when he will come again, making all things new. More is yet to come. That really is the central theme of Advent. More is yet to come. We're waiting, we're longing, we're living in anticipation of the fullness of God's promises. Yes, we have been delivered from sin, but we are still being delivered, and we are not yet fully delivered. Yes, God is with us, but we are not fully with him yet. More is yet to come. It's very much like the Lord's table, the Lord's supper that we celebrate. When we go to the Lord's table, we look back to what Christ has accomplished at the cross, and we remember what has been done for us to accomplish our salvation. But in the language of the Apostle Paul, we also eat and drink this meal until he comes, looking forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb that we will celebrate when he returns. During Advent, we look back at the incarnation. Our focus tends to be upon the first coming of Christ when he came to dwell in our midst. But we also do so with a view to his promised second coming to complete the work that he began when he came the first time. Ultimately, Jesus did not come only to be born of a virgin, as amazing as that truth is. Ultimately, he didn't come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, as good a news as that is. He didn't ultimately come to be crucified and to be raised from the dead, as essential as that is to our salvation. Ultimately, the reason that Jesus Christ came and was incarnated was so that he might ultimately reconcile sinners with God. And that reconciliation, we are still waiting for the fullness of that. We are looking for his second coming. We've been looking during this Advent season over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Emmanuel promise. Emmanuel means God with us. It's a three-word summary of what the entire covenant of grace is about. The Bible, from beginning to end, is about God's covenant of grace, this relationship that he has entered into with sinners like you and me, so that we might be reconciled to him through his redeeming work. And the summary of the covenant promise is God with us. 
A little more elaboration of that promise is where it's repeated from beginning to end of Scripture where God over and over again says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you. You will be with me. That's what salvation is about. That's what Christ's work of redemption is all about, ultimately. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the tabernacle of the Old Testament. As strange of a structure as that was, it was a picture of that same Emmanuel promise. That was a picture of God dwelling in the midst of the encampment of his people. At the very center of their lives, he met with his people. And then we saw how the tabernacle foreshadowed the completed work of salvation in Christ. When Israel was established in the promised land and Jerusalem was established as the capital city, the tabernacle was replaced with a more permanent structure, the temple, but the meaning was the same. This was where God meets with his people. This is a symbol of God dwelling in the midst of his people. And then last week we looked at John chapter 1, where the Apostle John speaks of the coming of Christ in terms of the tabernacle. Remember it says that Jesus became Emmanuel. That's one of the great names of Jesus is Emmanuel. He was literally God with us. He became flesh and dwelt in our midst. He dwelt among us. And we saw last week that that word literally could be translated, he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle pointed to what Christ came to do. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. That's the ultimate point of salvation, that we would be reconciled to our holy God, our creator, and see his glory. Today, we're going to look at the last references to the tabernacle and temple that we find in all of God's word. At the very end of scripture, the very end of the last book of scripture in Revelation, John's vision of the future fullness of our salvation in chapters 21 and 22. Just to orient you for a second where we are in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, we have the account of the end of human history. When Satan and the forces of darkness, the forces of evil are judged and defeated and thrown into the eternal lake of fire, and then all of mankind stands before Jesus Christ, the judge of all mankind. And those who do not know him, those who do not trust in him, those who do not receive grace from him, they are separated from God and all that is good for eternity. That's how chapter 20 ends. But then in chapters 21 and 22, we have this glorious picture of the future state of those who do trust in Christ those who do know him by faith, those who have received grace through Christ, those who have their names written in the book of life, the list of those who were chosen before the foundation of the world to be reconciled to their God through the redeeming work of Christ. Like the rest of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22 are symbolic. It's put in symbolic language because we cannot, in this fallen state, in our limited human, fallen, sinful brains, cannot create, comprehend what our future state is going to be like. It speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. And this is one of those cases where I wish everybody could understand and read the original Greek because 
In Greek, we use the word new and we use it very broadly. It's one word that covers a lot of different nuances in the meaning. But in Greek, they had different words to talk about different senses of the word new. And this is not talking about new in the sense of something brand new and different, but new in the sense of something that's new in quality, something that's been transformed from what it was into something new. To give you an example, five, six years ago, we got serious about trying to plan for the growth of the church and, and to uh, try to come up with a building that would be suitable for a growing ministry. And we looked, we looked at the possibility of selling the small building we had and buying another one, or maybe buying some property and building another building. That would be a new church building in the sense of something new and different. Not the old building, but a brand new building that's different in a different place and looks very different. Instead, we decided to renew this building and transform it into something far greater than what it was, as you see it laid out now. That is the kind of new that John is talking about when he says we are going to have a new heaven and a new earth. There's continuity with what be was before. Not something new and radically different, not something alien to our experience, something that is a glorified, transformed version of what we now know. In other words, it's similar to our resurrection bodies. We will recognize one another in eternity. Our resurrection bodies will be new, glorified, transformed, but still, there's going to be a strong connection with what we were before, body and soul. And so it's much like what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about our resurrection body, but think of it in terms of the new heaven and the new earth, where he says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. All that is objectively good and beautiful in this present creation is going to be carried over into the new creation. Even the, the glory of the kings of the nations, thinking of the, of the great accomplishments of mankind, I see them as being transformed in a glorified, transformed state into an eternal new heavens and new earth. We're going to recognize it, but, but not recognize it. It's going to be so much more glorious than what we now experience. But it's interesting as we dig into how John describes this vision, this symbolic vision that he sees, it's interesting again how he talks more about what isn't going to be in the new heaven and the new earth than what is going to be in the new heaven and earth. It's like there's so much that he saw in this vision that he can't possibly put into words, and he spends more time focusing on what he didn't see. And so let's look at a few of those things. What's going to be missing in the new heaven and the new earth? First thing that's missing, you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 21, is the sea. It says, the sea was no more. Now, I've been a landlubber all my life. Never lived at the shore, never made a lot of trips to the shore. Matter of fact, going to the shore has never been a lot of fun for me because of the shores that I went to, you had to kind of, you, you hoped you'd find a big enough spot on the sand that, that your towel would fit on between everybody else's towels and picnic baskets and everything. But... Some of you love the shore. Some of you love to go and watch the waves and swim in the waves. And so that might sound disappointing to you. No sea? Wait a minute, I don't want to spend all eternity without any seas to look at, to enjoy. Well, again, it's symbolic. Don't ever lose sight of the fact. Revelation 
is symbolic. He's not talking about literal oceans or bodies of water. You have to go to the rest of Scripture. And that's one of the beautiful things about the uh, book of Revelation is that you have to go back to the other portions of Scripture, other prophetic books of the Bible like Ezekiel and Daniel in order to understand the imagery and the symbolism that's being used in Revelation. And when you do that and you look at how seas are used, the seas are used as, a, as an image of, a, of as, as a symbol, you begin to see what it, what it means when God speaks of a metaphorical sea. Let me give you an example from Psalm 65, verses 5 through 7. The psalm says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Now, if you know Hebrew poetry, like the Psalms, you know that it uses parallelism. It doesn't rhyme words, it rhymes ideas. And the, he mentions there the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and then he says the tumult of the peoples. And there you have the definition of what the seas represent symbolically. The tumult of the nations, this world that we live in where people are at each other in so many different ways, conflict, disagreement, debate, disunity. The seas to the ancient people were a chaotic, dangerous entity. Death is often pictured as drowning. And that's the way that, that, that the scriptures speak of the world in which we live, that the, that the peoples, all that conflict out there, the stuff that you read when you open up your browser on, in the morning to see what the top headlines are, what you see on the cable news network, all that stuff going on, that's the tumult of the peoples, that's the roaring of the seas. Interestingly, back in Revelation 13, it talks about the two beasts that come upon the earth. One beast represents the nations, the, 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 the civil powers that be. And the other, the other beast represents the false religions. And it talks about how they dominate the world between the two comings of Christ. But the beast that represents the, the conflict and the tumult of the, among the nations, you remember where that beast came from? Out of the seas. That's what it represents. That's all going to be gone after Christ comes again to establish his kingdom. It'll all be gone. No more conflict. No more war. No more abuse. No more injustice. No more oppression. Christ will put it all away. Can you imagine a world like that? The second thing that won't be there is there will be no curse. Look at verse 4 of chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were in a perfect world and a perfect fellowship with God, but they rebelled, they broke his law, and they were cast out of the garden. And a curse was placed upon the creation by God. And the result of that curse was thorns, Thistles, frustration, sweat, pain, conflict, tears, and finally death. But after Christ has restored the new earth and the new, new heaven, the pain will be over, the grief will be gone, and you have this image of God the Father, like a good, loving, compassionate father kneeling down and wiping away the tears so that even the evidence of the grief is now gone. 
The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has broken the power of the curse, but the curse still lingers, and we still deal with it every moment of every day. Pain, frustration, grief, death. But Christ is coming again to undo all of it, to put it all away once and for all. Paul talks about this great day in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We can't even imagine what it will be like to live without pain and grief and frustration. We can't imagine. We sang at the beginning of our service, Joy to the World, and I've always been kind of fascinated that we put that in the category of a Christmas hymn. If you read the words carefully, it's not about Christ's first coming. It's about his second coming, when he comes to put away the curse. What a very appropriate hymn to start this service with, as we look at how the first coming points to the second coming, when the curse will be taken away. Third thing that won't be in this new heaven and new earth, there won't be any temple. Look at verse tw chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. When Christ died on the cross, the Gospels tell us that in the temple, the successor to the tabernacle, in the temple, this thick veil that hung between the holy place and the most holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, which represented the very presence of God, that at the moment that Christ died, that veil was torn from top to bottom, showing that it was an act of God, opening the way between sinners and God. That's what Christ's death on the cross accomplished. No longer would we need any human priests as intermediaries. No longer would we need any blood animal sacrifices for, to atone for our sins. Christ's death paid in full and redeemed us completely. The church on the day of Pentecost became the temple of God. That's what the New Testament teaches us. When the Holy Spirit came to dwell within the church, we became the temple of God and we continue to be the temple of God until Christ comes again. And that temple, the church, will be gloriously transformed and our experience of the presence of God, our view of the face of God will become so much greater that we can't even imagine. So there won't be any need for a temple in the new heaven and new earth. The fourth thing that John says was not found in the new heaven or new earth, there's no sun or moon. Look at verse 23. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp, its lamp is the Lamb. Now again, I love the night sky. I love when all the stars are out in all their glory. 
And I don't think that this is intending to say that we will not have any heavenly bodies in the new heaven and new earth. What would the new heaven be without any sun, moon, or stars? Didn't mean, doesn't mean it literally. It's symbolic. John, of all the scripture writers, talks most about light and darkness. That's why there's no night in the new heaven and new earth, because the night is about darkness, and symbolically, darkness is about separation from God and evil. No darkness in the new heaven and new earth. No night. Only day, because the light of the very presence of God, the light from the face of God, is all the light that we need in the new heaven and new earth. Jesus is the light of the world already. But in a very literal sense, that light will flood everything and we will always walk in the light of Christ. It's not talking again about literal light. It's talking about the presence of Christ. When we call Christ the light of the world, what we're saying about him is that he shows us reality. He is the truth. He's the source of all truth. And we see all of reality in light of what he shows us. And we see that also dimly right now as we look through a glass darkly. But in that day, we will see perfectly by the light of Christ. We will see reality for what it truly is as God sees it. It also speaks of when it says that Jesus is the light of the world, it speaks that he is the source of life. Just like the light of the sun gives life to the earth, Jesus is the source of all life. We will walk in the fullness of that light, and no one can ever take that light and that life away from us. We will literally say on that day, life doesn't get any better than this. Then fifth, the fifth thing that John says is not in the new heaven and new earth is that there are no unbelievers, no pagans, no false religions, no evildoers. Verse 27 of chapter 1, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Since there won't be any gates, the gate, well, there, there will be gates, but they're going to be open all the time. You know why? Not because anybody new can enter in after Christ has come again, but because there are no enemies outside. You don't have to shut the gates. The only reason you shut the gates of the city is that there are enemies outside. The enemies have been put away once and for all. Those who don't believe are gone. Can you imagine the sweet fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ when all sin has been removed? The only people that we will know and interact with are people whose names are written in the book of life. Those who were predestined, called, justified, and glorified. We have no idea what that kind of fellowship will be like. When you're not going to be a sinner and I'm not going to be a sinner, we will all be transformed into the image of Christ. But there's also a strong warning in these words, isn't there? Because these words are being read today, before Christ has come again, before the end, while everyone's still breathing, still many unbelievers have the opportunity. There's a warning that says there is no second chance. When Christ comes again, when you die, or when Christ comes again, that's it. You will not be able to enter into this new heaven and new earth if you do not trust in Christ. The book of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. 
Only those who trust in Christ will be there. Only they will be justified and glorified. Now, having described things that aren't in the new heavens and new earth, he then talks about what life will be like. And he uses two metaphors for how life will, what life will be like in the eternal kingdom. And again, he uses metaphors because these things are too wonderful for us to comprehend in our limitations, in our sinfulness. The first metaphor he uses, he says life is going to be like an ongoing marriage, a perfect marriage. Chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That is an overarching metaphor that ties all of Scripture together. That God, when in saving his people, is going to enter into a covenant with them. That's what the covenant of grace is. We pattern the covenant of marriage after it. It's a covenant relationship based upon the promises of God. And Jesus uses that image when he talks about his second coming. How many of his, his parables, his stories about the second coming, how many of them deal with a bridegroom coming back for the bride? That's imagery taken from Old Testament prophets, that the bridegroom will come back for his bride. We are betrothed to Christ. Now, just a reminder, often we talk about betrothal at this time of year because Joseph and Mary were betrothed before they came together. We tend to think of that as engagement, but it was much more binding than engagement. Betrothal, you are actually, in a very real sense, covenanted to your spouse. You were bound to that spouse for life when you were betrothed to them, but there was always a waiting period before the actual wedding day, the wedding feast, when you would come together and be fully married. And so... Scripture tends to use that analogy to say that we are in the betrothal period. Because Christ died for us, we belong to him. His name is upon us. We are betrothed to him. But we are not fully with him yet. Yes, he's with us by his spirit, but we are not fully with him face to face. This is a betrothal period, which is a period of preparation. Just as it was back for Mary being prepared to be married to Joseph. It's a time to prepare. And Paul talks about this preparation period of the church, the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, when he's talking about marriage between husband and wife, but then relates it to the relationship between Christ and his church. And it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See how that gets back to the main purpose of his coming. It wasn't just to die for the sins of the church and to put away the guilt, and to break the power of sin. It wasn't just that, but it was to beautify the church and bring the church to himself. He's coming back one day. And there's going to be a great wedding feast of the Lamb. And from that point on, we will be with him forever in the fullest sense of the word. And verses, we didn't look at verses 9 through 21. We didn't read those verses. But that is where John is given a vision of the prepared, beautified, transformed bride of Christ, the church. It's the end result of the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. And the angel says to John, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's in verse 9. 
And it talks about the bride coming down out of heaven from God. And when I read that, I think of that moment, that wonderful moment in a wedding ceremony when the bridal march starts to play and everybody stands up and they turn around and back at the end of the aisle, there is the bride in all of her glory. That's, that's really a perfect picture of what John is seeing here. The church, the glorified church, the perfected church is coming down the aisle from heaven to its permanent dwelling place in the new heaven and the new earth. And it uses again uh, symbolic imagery to talk about the beauty of holiness in the church and uses language of precious metals and stones. It says that the city is made of pure gold, gold that is so pure that you can practically see through it. It says it's like transparent like glass. That's how pure the gold is of the city. It has perfect dimensions. It says 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. It's like a cube. It's got perfect dimensions in every direction. 12,000 stadia is 144,000, or one, I'm sorry, 1,400 miles. Just to give an idea of the immensity of the saving work of Christ. This city that's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. And the walls are covered with all kinds of precious jewels. And there are 12 gates, and each gate is a massive pearl. It's the beauty of holiness. It is the transformed bride of Christ. It's you and me. It's the church meeting her, her bridegroom when he comes again. And then it ends with chapter 22, the beginning of chapter 22, with that view of our eternal home. And it's described in terms, should be very familiar terms, the Garden of Eden. It says, we will live with God in a universe with all the corrupting effects of sin and the curse removed. Eden will be restored. It says, flowing from the throne of the Father and the Son is the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. The water, the, speaking of the waters of Eden, but more of that speaking symbolically of Jesus Christ, who is the water of life. That water cleanses and that water nurtures our eternal life. Christ is our life. He is the water of life. And then it speaks of the tree of life there on both sides of the river with fruit, abundant fruit growing every season. The, the tree of life was that tree that after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out of the garden and an angel was placed, put in place to guard the tree of life so that they might not take the, 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 the tree and eat and live. Now, because of the work of Christ, the blood that was shed at the cross, now the access to the tree of life is open and we can eat of it freely for all eternity. This is all symbolic language, but there's a place in the beginning of chapter 22 where it stops being symbolic, and I take it very, very literally. Let's look at verse 4. The this is the point of it all. Verse 4, they will see his face. That's what Moses longed for on the top of Mount Sinai. Lord, show me your glory. I want to see all of who you are. I want to know you. To the extent of my being, I want to know you. We will see his face. That is, no matter what you think your needs are in life, no matter what you think your wants are in life, 
That is what you need and want more than anything else is to see the full glory of God. These symbolic images give us an admittedly vague view of our future. We'd love to see more detail, but that's what's given to us for now. But it's enough. It's what we long for. This is a season of longing. We still haven't found what we're looking for. Praise God, there's more yet to come. We need, it's, it's an, I have learned that it's an essential part of discipleship as a follower of Christ, that we need to, to develop a holy discontentment in this life. We tend to think of discontentment as always a sinful thing, but there is such a thing as holy discontentment. I can tell you what sinful discontentment is. I know that well. Sinful discontentment is being frustrated or being discontent because we don't have something in this world that we think we should have. Something that God has not given us. That's sinful. To be discontent because God has not given us something in this world. But you know what holy discontentment is? It's when you're not content because you don't yet have all that Christ has promised you. You don't yet have all that Christ has won for you at the cross. You don't have the new heaven and the new earth. So in this life, you should be discontent in a holy way as you long for the fullness of your salvation and for that day when you're going to see Christ face to face. Paul expressed this attitude of true discipleship as best as I've ever heard it in Philippians chapter 3 beginning in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Advent. That's what we're talking about. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we're redeemed. But there's so much more to come. Once heard a story about an old, an elderly woman who met with the pastor because she wanted to plan her own funeral. And as she went through the details of the funeral service, she said, she got to the end, she said, Pastor, one more thing, and I know you're going to think this is kind of weird, but could you make sure that when they bury me in that casket that I have a fork in my hand? And he said, okay. But, but why? Why would you want to be buried with a fork in your hand? And she said, well, you know when somebody invites you over to dinner, and after the dinner's over and they come to take the plates away, they say to you, keep your fork. And you know what that means? That means that the best is yet to come. That's how a Christian faces death. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your grace. We reflect upon how even though we were slaves to the darkness, slaves to our sin, captured by the evil one, destined for an eternity away from your presence, you came to us. You sent your son. He was born to a virgin. He lived among us, lived a perfect life among us. And then he offered up that perfect life on a cross. He died in our place. He bore your wrath against our sins in our place. We're so thankful 
that that death and more than that, his resurrection accomplished all that needed to be done to make us clean, to deliver us from the power of sin, to give us, to make us heirs of those promises of your covenant of grace. But yet, we know that there's so much more to come in our salvation. Thank you for this opportunity to reflect both upon your first coming and ultimately on your second coming. And Lord, I pray that you would instill within us a deeper, more powerful, holy discontentment with this fallen world and all of its rewards. Keep our focus on the return of our bridegroom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.